Hey, this is Paul Roberts of the Security Ledger. If your company's trying to reach sophisticated information technology professionals with an interest in information security, consider becoming a Security Ledger podcast sponsor. Each month, thousands of IT professionals download our podcast to hear in-depth reporting and interviews with some of the sharpest minds in information security. To find out more about sponsoring the Security Ledger podcast, go to our webpage, securityledger.com forward slash sponsor. Hello and welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, the editor-in-chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's podcast, episode number 101, for much of the past two months, the city of Atlanta has been struggling to recover from a pernicious ransomware infection that has disrupted city services and cost the city government millions. How did the outbreak start? Well, we don't know, but researchers from the firm Coronet say that their analysis of data from their cloud security tool has revealed evidence of widespread Wi-Fi phishing attacks aimed at city employees and elected officials. In the second part of our podcast, we're going to talk with Coronet CEO Dror Lever about that company's survey of Atlanta and other municipal government networks across the United States. But first, our fifth Security of Things forum wrapped up last week in Boston. One of the highlights of the show was a keynote address by science fiction author and activist Cory Doctorow, who talked about the challenges that the Internet of Things will pose to us as consumers and citizens of a free society. The greater penetration of software into our daily lives and physical environments, Doctorow said, will create for a future in which computers aren't just powerful tools that enable us to do lots of different things, but software-driven stuff that insists on us doing things in very specific ways that conform to the terms of software license agreements. In our first segment, we sat down with Corey to talk about what he calls the war on general purpose computing. Yeah, my name is Corey Doctorow, and I'm a science fiction writer. I'm an affiliate at the MIT Media Lab and a professor of computer science at the Open University and a special consultant to the Electronic Frontier Foundation. The idea of the war on general purpose computing is that we really only know how to make one kind of computer, and that's the general purpose computer. And the general purpose computer can run all the programs that we can express in symbolic logic. And that includes programs that people don't like for legitimate reasons and illegitimate reasons, whether that's the FBI saying, can you just build me a computer that can run all the programs except for working crypto, or... um, the uh, motion picture industry saying, can't you just build me a computer that can run all the programs except for the ones that infringe copyright? Everyone has a problem with computers because computers do everything in our modern world. And so everyone has uh, hit on this this kind of uh, understandable misunderstanding that the way they can fix it is just by mandating that computers can run all the programs except for the one that they don't like. But we don't know how to make that computer. Uh, the closest approximation we have are computers that do things like run Um, invisible processes that check to see what you're trying to do and if they detect you doing something that the manufacturer would prefer that you not do they try and shut it down and these invisible processes they have to be invisible if there was a process that uh, corresponded to like a file on your desktop called like um, I can't let you do that dave.exe or whatever you would just drag that process into the trash can and so in order for this kind of um, digital rights management stuff to run, it needs to run invisibly. The files have to be obfuscated, the processes have to be obfuscated. In computer science parlance, you might say that they're creating like a ring minus one, a process below the point that all the administrative processes run at, that the root processes run at, that the root user can't know about and can't terminate and can't modify. And there's some real dangers to this. The most significant one is that if malware can figure out how to exploit that system, then by definition, it's running in a way that the user can't know about and that users' um, antivirus processes and intrusion detection systems and all the rest of it are, are hopeless against because it's running beneath the threshold at which any of those processes can inspect what's going on. It's basically just rootkits, but it's rootkits that are introduced by the manufacturer instead of by malicious third parties. So the way that this intersects with the Internet of Things is that hardware is really a crummy business to be in. You know, the margin for commodity hardware, it starts at like 2%. And it falls from there. You know, if you have successful hardware, 
the thing that happens is that you get cloned in the Far East and then your hardware margin goes negative. And since hardware is also capital intensive, you know, you need a lot of money to make stuff and get it from Guangzhou or Shenzhen to the port of Los Angeles and then across the world, you need to be able to promise an investor that you will figure out a way to make money from your hardware that isn't the 2% margin that you're going to get from selling hardware. And, and that's usually some combination of controlling the software ecosystem with something like an app store or controlling the uh, replacement and consumables ecosystem. So, you know, that might be a, a printer that controls its ink or it might right. be a, a coffee machine that controls its uh, uh, coffee pods or you're going to control the parts and service or, or all of the above. Um, and in order to do that, that machine has to be able to resist the user trying to get the, the machine to do the user's bidding and force it to do the manufacturer's bidding. And in 1998, Congress made a law that says if you have a software access control that controls access to a copyrighted work, then removing that access control or even describing its defects is a felony punishable by a five-year prison sentence and a uh, a $500,000 fine for a first offense. That's all under Section 1201 of the DMCA. And so what that means is if you have a system with some software in it, which is a copyrighted work, and you deploy a kind of minimum viable access control, just enough to you know, credibly say that you're controlling access to that software, to the bootloader or the firmware, then you can invoke the law to felonize anyone who uses the product that you sell them in a way that's better for them than it is for your shareholders. And so we're seeing this rolling out to the entire internet of things, whether that's voting machines or seismic dampers or implanted insulin pumps. Everyone has got on board with this and it lets them control who's allowed to compete with them. And it also lets them control who's allowed to disclose defects in their products. And so this is double good news for the manufacturer and double bad news for everybody else. There's this immense temptation to use it and it frustrates the basic uh, security practice of independently evaluating the security of a system and then deciding the manner of your disclosure. And so now we have these systems that actuate and sense that we put our bodies into and that are inside of our bodies that are unauditable right. and that are designed to frustrate user inspection and reconfiguration. And that is a recipe for a catastrophe. Yeah. There's a long history of this, really, in technology. I think back, Corey, to the Sony rootkit, right? The XCP rootkit back in, I guess that was like 2005, right? There is a sense in which every attempt to kind of control this content is on a very fast and slippery slope to to developing a rootkit. I mean, it's it's like it, it, you're, you're always about one or two steps away from just giving everybody, every one of your customers a rootkit. Well, and that's, that's the idea of this war on general purpose computing is that once you take it as legitimate to control which processes can run in a computer and to, to be able to override the wishes of the owner of the computer as to which processes are running on it, then it's always going to be a rootkit. Because, you know, the person sitting at the, at the terminal with root access, generally speaking, can choose what processes they want to run. And if a third party wants to provide them with the, the tools to blast pack, uh, past a boot locker or, or to... Uh, subvert a system that checks uh, code signatures before they run, then, you know, that person, even if that person doesn't know what they're doing, they'll find the tool that lets them jailbreak the device to, do, to accomplish those ends. I guess, what do you, so, I mean, when that's happened in the past, there has been a response. I mean, we can talk about the Sony rootkit. Obviously, there was a huge uh, reaction to that, negative reaction to the company, and they backtracked on it. Why would things be different in the context of the Internet of Things? So, so specialized uh, sensing, actuating, but but single-purpose devices. Uh, would there not also be a similar reaction to these kind of um, draconian efforts to control use and, and distribution of the technology, or, or do you think that people might be kind of inured to it for whatever reason? Well, you know, that's a really good question. I mean, in, in part, I'm kind of hoping to create that reaction. Like, I don't think that reaction comes about on its own. Like, I was part of the, the uh, group of people who spread the word about the Sony Rootkit in 2005. Like, the reaction didn't just happen. We made it. And right, so that's kind right. of what I'm hoping to do here. But there are some differences. So the Sony Rootkit, um, they 
uh, engaged in a deceptive practice. So the, the way the Sony rootkit worked is they had a multi-session multi CD and it had an autoplay data session with, with a, um, a, you know, an init file that uh, uh, exploited a zero day in Windows to patch your kernel so that they could run this rootkit on your computer. And they infected two to 300,000 US military and government networks that way, as well as lots of other people's computers. And the difference is between that and you having a printer that when you buy it already has the rootkit on it or a kitty litter pen or an insulin pump. And so it's a, it's a slightly different story because your stuff isn't being deceptively right. modified. Although there's some of that too, and I'm gonna talk about this a little on Wednesday. You know, um, uh, a couple of years ago, um, uh, HP pushed an update out for its inkjet printers, for its OfficeJet and OfficeJet Pro printers that was deceptively labeled as a security update. So, you, you know, you get this message on the console of the, of the, you know, on the little touch screen saying you have a security update, would you like to install it now? And it wasn't a security update. What it was was a, a code patch that allowed the, um, the printers to distinguish between remanufactured cartridges and original cartridges so that if you refilled your ink cartridge, it wouldn't run anymore. So, you know, this is all kinds of bad. You know, right. if you're a security researcher, you should be really worried about companies that are um, creating incentives for consumers not to run security patches on sure. their Sure. Right. It's like the it's like when the cops impersonate journalists or something, you know, it's or, like, listen, you know, you just don't do some things. Or right? when the CIA went around Pakistan looking for Osama bin Laden pretending to be um, health workers vaccinating people. And, you know, <laughs> then, then the vaccination rates dropped off like crazy. Shock, shocker. Yeah. 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 You know, like we have and the vaccination uh, example is a really good one, because, you know, if your neighbor's printer is infected, that might be. The, the unit in the botnet that knocks the service that you're relying on offline. Sure, the herd immunity concept applies yeah. to computers as well as people, right? And so, you know, that's that's part of it. And then the other part is that uh, the Sony rootkit was, as you say, about um, subverting a general purpose computer that was on your desktop that you were using for other things as opposed to an IoT device. Um, this was not available to gadget manufacturers until pretty recently. You know, there are a couple of printer cartridge manufacturers and a garage door manufacturer that took a run at this in the early 2000s. And they said, you know, like Lexmark did this, they said, we have this 12-byte um, program on this little ASIC in our, uh, in our toner cartridges. And it does one thing. When the toner cartridge runs out, it flips a bit from I am full to I am empty. And then if you refill it, it doesn't matter. It won't run anymore because the uh, bit has still set at I am empty. So they had a competitor called Static Controls that reversed that 12-byte program, which is like not hard, it's a 12-byte program, and, uh, and figured out how to, how to flip the bit back to I am full. And so they could refill these cartridges. And uh, they went to court, Lexmark went to court over this, and the judge said, um, where is the copyrighted work that you are saying your competitor subverted the access control for? And they said, oh, it's the 12-byte program. And the judge said, well, software can rise to copyrightability, but it doesn't automatically. And 12 bytes, it's too small to be copyrightable. It's not even a haiku. And um, that's not the case anymore, right? Like all of these Internet of Things gadgets, they definitely have enough code in them to be copyrightable. They have a system on a chip running, you know, a three years out of date Linux system with a five years out of date unpatched version of BusyBox <laughs> on it, right? And yeah. That yeah. stuff is obviously copyrightable. And so, you know, now that there's software and everything, now that software is eating the world, anyone who has, you know, a 28 cent SOC in their, in their device, let alone a raspy or, or, you know, a better, a bigger processor, um, they can avail themselves of the DMCA and take advantage of it to control their, their user and their competitor's conduct. I think the, you know, the printer ink example is a really good one and probably one that most people can grasp onto and, and relate to, you know, why printer ink 
costs more than caviar or, you know, would name the luxury good, you yeah, know, on a sure. price, price per ounce basis. Um, you know, you, you know, it is not as difficult to create printer ink as it is to, you know, harvest eggs from sturgeon. And that is obviously the, a, a direct result of the fact that the printer hardware makers have, have arranged things so that you, you have to use their printer ink and you have to buy it from them. So in fact, they've, they've sort of locked these um, ecosystems. Would it be wrong to say in one dystopian version of the IoT future that in every category of good, you're dealing with some kind of monopolistic HP printer ink type situation? I think that's that's exactly where we're headed. I mean, I you know, we already have Lily, Eli Lilly's just um, uh, announced a... Um, uh, an artificial pancreas, a continuous loop implanted uh, insulin monitor and um, continuous glucose monitor, insulin pump and continuous glucose monitor that takes proprietary insulin, right? They're basically, they're turning people with diabetes into human inkjet printers. Like we are like one <laughs> vision system away from a, a bread that, a toaster that won't toast unauthorized bread. You know, we are like, we're, we're like one uh, RFID away from a dishwasher that won't uh, wash third-party dishes, um, you know who would who would really invest in a great toaster unless they could control what kind of bread you could use and realize the secondary. Or you know you didn't notice that on the box it said works best with KitchenAid bread. That's your problem. You know, like like all of those arguments can be made, right? Like we offered you a product to toast our bread, not any bread. If you wanted the any bread toaster, you should have bought the any bread toaster. And this is exactly the argument people make about iPhones and and about HP printers and about about all of the lockdown ecosystems. One area where you know we really see this, maybe some of the the early smoke uh, of this fire, is in the context of device repair and servicing. And obviously, this podcast has been very focused and devoted some time to the case of uh, Eric Lundgren, the e-waste recycler who. Uh, has recently, last week, uh, reported to federal prison for basically selling Microsoft Restore CDs to the people buying refurbished PCs and laptops uh, from from his company. I'd be interested in your thoughts on that and and what you think. I mean, it's been a public relations nightmare for Microsoft, um, but whether you think there is going to be any more lasting change as a result of uh, Eric's case. Well, I think what happened to Eric is a travesty, but I think that even more important is that all 18 right to repair bills were, were defeated in the legislature. You know, it's, it's it, it, like what happened to Eric is um, it's unusual uh, and that, that's why we know about it. But much more common is that you just have a device that no one will fix, right? That, that the Lundgrens of the world are just left out in the cold when it comes to fixing them. You know, the repair coalition they calculated that uh, the ton of e-waste that creates 15 jobs if you recycle it creates 250 jobs in your community if you repair it. Right? People don't sell their send their phones to China for repair or India for repair. These are good middle class jobs in your in your individual personal neighborhood, right? Where you live. This is the job your kid can get a job in that local mom and pop shop, fixing phones, fixing devices. If, if right to repair legislation carries. And it was killed by large corporate interests in all 18 states. Now we'll be back in the next session and we're gonna introduce it into more than 18 states in the next session. And I think we can pass it. I think we have to pass it. You know, leaving aside for just for a moment the environmental catastrophe that is e-waste, the, there's just the, the plain justice of being able to decide who fixes your stuff and being able to source parts and source third-party parts and not or let's be clear or fix it yourself or right? fix it yourself yeah yeah i mean you know apple has changed the the spec on the new iphone so that if you um rescue the digitizer the screen off of an iphone that's dead and put it onto another iphone that needs a new screen so this is an apple part onto an apple device the firmware will recognize the screen until Apple gives you a code. And deriving that code yourself by jailbreaking the phone is unlawful. It's a felony. Right? So this is not even about making sure that you're only using Apple parts. This is about making sure that Apple gets a piece of it every time someone fixes a phone. John Deere does this with their tractors. You put a part in your tractor, 
And you have to right. wait for some rando to show up and type a code into the console before the tractor's firmware will recognize it. Right. And this seems to be the subtext of, and, and God knows what Microsoft's motivation in going after Eric Lundgren is, but one one reading of the case, and, and certainly to read Microsoft's um, testimony in the case, was that they really want refurbishers to sign up for their Microsoft refurbisher program. And that was the basis for the monetary losses that they cited as a result of what Eric was was doing, was uh, to use the prices that they charge within this Microsoft certified refurbisher program. Um, uh, and, and they talk about it as if this is um, something that people... I guess have to join, but of course it's a completely voluntary program. I mean, there's very, you know, there, there are certainly benefits of being in it, but it, but it's not mandatory. It's optional. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's funny to, to hear the, the firms with a straight face say, well, there's just no good reason not to sign up. If there was no good reason not to sign up, then everybody would sign up, right? You wouldn't need to send people to jail who chose not to sign up. If there was no good reason not to, I'm sure there's lots of good reasons not to, not least, that you can use third-party parts, right? right? And so, like, when a manufacturer is end-of-life to a device and stops making parts for it, if you have a customer who wants to keep that device working, then you can use third-party parts. And, um, you know, that that is not a crime. It is not a crime to deprive the manufacturer of the right to benefit from parts forever. Right. You know what's really interesting to me about you speaking at my at, at the Security of Things event on Tuesday, which again is part of a larger event called ThingWorks, is that you know ThingWorks is a is a convention of people or user conference of people who use uh, PTC's products. Uh, the the live uh, sorry LiveWorks is a user convention of people who use the ThingWorks platform. These are connected device makers, thing makers, mm-hmm. and. What's really interesting to me it, to, uh, about having you talk is to is how do we have this conversation not just with you know fire breathing digital rights people who are you know sort of the chorus you're preaching to a choir how do you have this conversation um, about what type of a world we want to create what kind of an internet of things we want to create with people who are clearly out to, you know, make make money on the Internet of Things, to make connected products, to, you know, create new businesses and services around those products and to and to make make a profit. Well, you know, I think that um, in in the world of um, of of tech workers. So I, th- I we can probably divide this up into the the world of um, uh, of investors and CEOs and tech workers. And I think that tech workers, when you when you explain to them that the stuff they're building now, the anti-competitive elements of it, this, these skins that they're putting around it to stop competitors, also stop them from starting a business that competes with their employer in the future. And this right. is, you know, the Silicon Valley success story is the guy who works for a dum-dum who quits and starts a better company and puts the dum-dum out of business. I mean, it is literally the origin of Silicon Valley. So, you know, Silicon Valley is called Silicon Valley because a guy named Shockley won the uh, Nobel Prize for um, uh, conceiving of the silicon transistor and and replacing gallium arsenide. That's why it's now called gallium arsenide (laughs) valley. And he set up shop in Silicon Valley to make the first microprocessor. And we're not sure what happened to him, but a lot of people think maybe he had a little stroke. But in any event, he went really crazy, and he became a committed, overwhelming eugenicist. And he took his Nobel Prize money, and he diverted it to paying people of color to get sterilized so, so in order to create racial purity. And he became paranoid, and he wiretapped his employees, and he wiretapped his wife, and he wiretapped <laughs> his kids. His company never shipped a semiconductor. But what happened was his eight senior engineers, these eight brilliant mathematicians he brought over from Hungary, quit and founded a little company called Intel. And so, you know, in giving tech workers the power to quit their job and outcompete their dumb boss is key to the future. 
And or they're crazy every, boss. The case or they're be. crazy boss. Or they're, you know, whatever, right? And every time you allow, you build into your technology stuff that your boss can use to sue you if you quit your job and go into business competing with them, you cut your own throat. And tech workers are unique in the world right now in that there is so much more demand for them than there is supply. I mean, this is a great conference and there's lots of that people will learn at this conference, but the reason that it's tech workers getting sent to conferences like this and not the janitors getting sent to conferences where janitors could do professional development is because employers know that tech workers have an inbox full of emails from recruiters and they really want those workers to feel uh, well disposed to their employers. You know, Google just just saw that um, when your workers all get together and say, we don't think our company should be working on this contract that might end up being worth a quarter of a billion dollars for the Pentagon, that the company has to listen. So the tech workers in the audience, if not their bosses, have an enormous amount of leverage to make good calls on this stuff. And I'm not sure exactly how you reach the firms and their investors, but I know how you work, reach the tech workers because they've all been on the other side of this and they understand that someday they'll, that, you know, the likelihood that they'll still be working for the company they're working for now in 25 years is effectively zero, right? That was IBM in the 1950s. It's sure. no one now. Right. And so it is in their interest not to collaborate in projects that make competing with their current employer much harder in the future. Yeah, I know you and EFF have, have put together this, um, you know, an encyclopedia or atlas of, of non-existent products or products that would exist, but for the sort of draconian, you know, um, uh, uh, DMCA and, and copyright control. Uh, it strikes me that that's, that's part of it as well also, which is just that the, the you know, that the, there's a constraining factor to all this and that, and that as the copyrights and the ecosystems um, multiply it, it, it your options become much more limited your ability to to maneuver and start new companies or come up with new ideas that aren't already protected by some uh, somebody else's copyright also become very constrained yeah it becomes a very winner-take-all uh, affair you know I think that like as technologists we understand that compatibility layers and abstraction layers and adversarial compatibility they're just like how things work you know I'm sitting in front of a laptop right now talking to you and when I go and I open my terminal it says TTY at the top that's because like at some point someone needed to write a program to get a a computer to talk to a glass teletype instead of a line printer and so they just wrote a compatibility layer so that the, the computer didn't know that it wasn't talking to a line printer anymore. It thought that it was talking to a glass teletype. And then further down in its lineage, someone said, oh, well, now this glass teletype is actually just a window inside a GUI. And they wrote another compatibility layer that likely sits on top of that first compatibility layer. And so, you know, if, if, if you want to make a device that fits into someone's ecosystem, you need to be able to impersonate uh, an approved device to the control hub and to the to the rest of the system. And that's not a, a technically challenging matter, but it's becoming an increasingly legally fraught matter. And that means that the companies that win the ecosystem today will be able to lock their customers into their their ecosystem forever. You know, that the sunk cost of replacing your dryer and your fridge and your stove and your, your thermostat will be so high that even if someone makes a really cool light switch, you're never going to throw away everything else just to use the light switch. As with the DMCA, it's, 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 it strikes me that so often these huge decisions are really made in the you know, sausage maker of, of policy and often, you know, especially insofar as they concern things like copyright, which is a highly technical kind of field of the law. Uh, it's very hard to get people uh, up in arms about them. And yet these things end up having a huge impact on our lives. Yeah, you know, it's it's that super deadly combination of incredibly boring and incredibly important. <laughs> and that's where all the mischief happens. You know, uh, yeah. this is how net neutrality, you know, got as buggered up as it did, is that, like, it took 15 years to get people to not immediately fall asleep when you uttered the words net neutrality. Yes, right, right. You know, the, the, the intersection of... of uh, competition policy and telecoms policy i mean even i'm bored by that yeah you know but if we're all the action 
Yeah. Right? Oh, I mean, it, it, like, it touches all of our lives. Absolutely. There's no question. Corey Jockshow, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us again on the Security Ledger podcast. And we're looking forward to your talk on Tuesday morning in Boston on uh, at the Security Things Forum. Yeah, I can't wait. And I'm really honored to have been asked. Up next, Atlanta made news back in April when it was revealed that the city had expended some $2.5 million to try and recover from a ransomware outbreak that began in March and involved the SAM-SAM ransomware program. Hopes for a quick recovery may have been premature. However, in early June, we found out that the extent of damage from that outbreak was much more extensive than believed. One third of Atlanta's 424 necessary programs were knocked offline in the attack, 30% of them mission critical. And the city attorney's office lost all but six of its 77 computers, as well as 10 years worth of documents. The cost of the cleanup may well top $11 million or more, according to city officials. How did this happen to one of the nation's largest municipal governments? While we don't know for sure what the origins of the SAM-SAM outbreak were, our next guest, Dror Lever of the firm Coronet, said that his company has detected a wireless spear phishing attack targeting Atlanta government employees and elected officials in the months coinciding with the ransomware outbreak. Unknown actors set up rogue Wi-Fi hotspots within the halls of government that were likely used to harvest employee credentials or place malware on computers of employees and officials who connected to them. In our second segment, we invited Lever in to talk about Cornet's research and a larger survey the company did of the cybersecurity of large metropolitan areas in the U.S. I started by asking Dror to talk about the work that Cornet did surveying the security of large metropolitan governments and what the company discovered. Uh, my name is Dror Lever, and I'm the chief security officer and co-founder of Coronet. Uh, Coronet uh, brings enterprise-grade security to any size organization, uh, especially in the age of uh, mobile devices and cloud adoption. So things that uh, very large organizations spend millions of dollars on securing, we're able to provide that service as a free service to any organization of any size. One of the things uh, that you have been doing recently is to look at the um, security of large metropolitan uh, areas in in the U.S. and I'm, I'm guessing other area other countries as well. Talk to us about that particular survey or study that you did and and how that came about and what type of data you you're gathering. First of all, let me start by saying that we have just over 1 million people on our platform right now. All of these uh, users are sending back to our servers uh, threat information. From the threat perspective, we look at uh, three aspects. The infrastructure, mostly the uh, networks and the connectivity, so everything to do with uh, Wi-Fi and cellular networks. Uh, The device posture itself, so how safe are the device configuration uh, that people are using, and uh, the cloud services that people are using and what uh, what is happening within those cloud services as far as uh, any kinds of cloud-to-cloud attacks, uh, unauthorized sharing, violations of uh, regulatory requirements and things of that sort. Collecting all this data, we suddenly found ourselves sitting on a, a truly enormous uh, amount of data, and we thought, hey, you know, why why don't we look at this a little bit more from a thirty thousand feet level uh, instead of a, on a threat by threat level, and see what is the situation uh, around the U.S. And that's how we came up originally with the uh, threat in the city report, which we published. I think it was the. 22nd of May, so about uh, about a month ago. Let's talk about the um, threat in the city report. High level, what did you discover when you started analyzing this data set that you had and then localizing it to particular metropolitan areas? So what we've done was we uh, divided up uh, the metropolitan areas based on uh, something called DMAs, which is the uh, uh, the way um, ratings are managed to create these clusters around uh, large metropolitan areas. And then what we did was we looked at the level of vulnerabilities that we saw, and then we created an index 
so we combined the device vulnerabilities with infrastructure vulnerabilities, and together we created a, uh, a risk index. Remember that the primary audience that we have is made to small companies. So we wanted to see how vulnerable would be a mid to small size company in any of those metropolitan areas. And the vulnerability is basically based on the likelihood of them being hit uh, with a cyber attack successfully. We got to a point where we saw a huge disparity between different metropolitan areas in how risky they are. So for example, where Las Vegas, for example, was the most vulnerable city that we've discovered, especially for uh, the mid-sized market, we saw other cities that were doing much, much better. Where we drew the line was um, at uh, you know six and a half. So if you were anything under six and a half, your city was pretty much safe uh, or less vulnerable, I should say. Whereas uh, cities above that were uh, vulnerable and uh, cities like Las Vegas and uh, Memphis and Charlotte got extremely high marks. What goes into that six and a half rating? Uh, what are the data points that you're looking at and measuring? We're looking at uh, multiple data points. Uh, we're looking at the number of uh, active attackers per capita. So, so I should step back and say, that our technology is able to detect in real time threats and attacks, both at the infrastructure level, as well as on the, the device vulnerability level, as well as cloud vulnerability levels. So it's, it's a patented technology that allows us to identify different levels of threats and be able to report them back uh, into our database. So for example, if we discover that uh, practically in uh, every single major hotel in Las Vegas, there is an evil twin present uh, that is uh, doing what we call Wi-Fi phishing. Uh, it's not what we call it, it's a term. Um, then obviously that is a major threat because that attacker is trying to lure users to use his or her uh, Wi-Fi network. And once they do so, they can uh, get hold of their credentials and they can uh, get hold of their entire data stream and uh, eavesdrop on it or manipulate it or uh, do whatever they, uh, they wish once the user is uh, connected. They can even infect the device that the user is using if the user is not being very careful. And what we've seen was that people specifically, uh, when they're in Vegas, are not being very careful. Shocker. Yes, exactly. Shocker. Uh, so combining the fact that on the one hand side, there is active attack community that is going on. Uh, and on the other side, there is very low uh, cyber hygiene on the part of the end users. Combining that into a perfect storm where you get uh, a city where I think it's uh, six and a half million people come to the city to do business in conventions every year. Uh, so instead of trying to chase these people in their headquarters, you can just set a trap at a convention and get them there where they're not as likely to behave responsibly. Sure. Maybe out, uh, you know, celebrating or going to events where they're having a few drinks and... Uh... I'm not going to even go there. It's simpler than that. They yeah. use their VPN. Their VPN doesn't work because the uh, attacker uh, jammed the VPN port. So they think, oh, it's probably IT's fault and they just connect without the VPN. And we've all had the experience of, of looking for that uh, hotel or uh, airport lounge Wi-Fi and seeing a whole bunch of uh, look-alike Wi-Fis that might use the name of the airline or of the hotel. My assumption being a security writer is always that those are malicious, but is, is that safe to assume that those are probably folks attempting to lure you onto a dummy network or what? I honestly can't think of a legitimate reason to create a Wi-Fi network in the middle of a park called United Wi-Fi other than trying to lure people who flew United right, uh, right. onto your network. Actually, you don't even need to lure these people because their devices will connect to it automatically. I mean, you can call it honeypot, you can call it evil twin, whatever you want to call it. But the point there is that I don't see any legitimate reason for somebody to create such a network uh, other than nefarious objectives. One of the things that you guys have done is to look specifically at the city of Atlanta, which has been in the news for a really long-running, painful, and expensive for them uh, ransomware outbreak. And and uh, tell us a little bit about what you found when you looked at Atlanta. 
Sure. So what happened was uh, there was a news piece that came out that said that the recovery from the uh, cyber attack that Atlanta suffered in, I think it was March, has uh, ballooned into uh, much larger numbers financially than they had originally expected. And the fact that uh, some services are still not completely restored. So in our lab, we said, hey, why don't we look into the database and see what the situation is in Atlanta? And honestly, to our horror, we found that um, there were active attack nodes, not only in the municipality buildings, but also in the state Senate. And, and, and we, we saw this and we were surprised at the audacity of the attackers, right? Because these attacks require somebody to actually physically gain access to the location to place the hardware there. Um, and that, that was uh, just uh, true audacity to do this in a state, in a city that has all the spotlights on it. And I wouldn't be surprised if this had uh, been placed there months ago and it's still just going on or has been removed quietly uh, a little later, but uh, so people will actually go in and and place a rogue uh, Wi-Fi hotspot that they're going to use uh, to draw in victims, and and you said they were doing this actually within the halls of government within the uh, state capital itself. So in the case of uh, one of the buildings, we found an active Wi-Fi phishing uh, attack, which means, as we discussed before, somebody set up a network that looked exactly like the municipal network with the portal uh, in front of it. So people would, I guess, employees or guests of the municipal building would try to log in and surrender their credentials to the attacker, which obviously isn't exactly a very good thing. So these networks would be out there. Obviously, anyone who tried to connect to any Wi-Fi network would see them broadcasting. Um, Why do they persist? In other words, why is nobody saying, hey, that's, you know, somebody in the IT group, for example, saying, hey, that's not uh, a, a Wi-Fi network that we're operating, where is it and why is it there? That's a fantastic question. Uh, and the short answer to it is because they're blind to it. Uh, so a network that brought, that the attackers do such a good job of looking just like the legitimate network that it's virtually impossible for somebody that doesn't have our software uh, or similar software to identify that kind of an attack. Uh, it behaves under the protocols of the, of the government, uh, uh, meaning the uh, municipal government. So it tries to look as much as the local uh, legitimate network, and it's extremely difficult to identify it as a rogue network. Now, our technology is able to do it, and we have some patents, uh, really uh, interesting patents around that, but um, the, the the idea of a regular IT person sitting in an office, uh, knowing that there is an attack node there is uh, very, very low, and they need to be quite sophisticated, and they usually would need some um, uh, very uh, specialized physical radio equipment. Uh, Our our patent or our technology basically um, eliminates that need. So instead of needing specific hardware to identify these kinds of rogue networks, we uh, use the device itself uh, that we're installed on, whether it's a laptop, a tablet, a phone, doesn't matter. We use that device's uh, modem, uh, that device's uh, network uh, modem, to identify these kinds of, uh, of threats. Sort of by proximity? Proximity is one of the things we look at. And obviously, not only the IT staff um, ignorant of these, IT staff themselves may be among the top targets of these uh, attackers, right, I guess, because of their uh, level of access to the network itself. So we call this a high-value actor. So clearly, uh, I'm sorry, high-value uh, target. So clearly, anybody that has credentials uh, that can provide access to more stuff uh, is more of a target for uh, a targeted attack. Having said that, um, most of the attacks we see are not targeted attacks. They are what we call war drives, meaning somebody sets up a trap and hopes to capture as much fun information as they can reuse later. Um, so a lot of the attacks we see, for example, in for example Las Vegas or in other, um, other places that we've uh, covered, Uh, What we see is somebody setting up something that looks completely innocent 
in the hopes that people would connect to that innocent thing and then surrender their credentials, give access to their data stream so the uh, attacker can then extract other valuable information from it, uh, and so forth and so on. In the case of Atlanta, what do we know about the timing of this? And is there any reason to believe that these Wi-Fi phishing attacks um, preceded the ransomware infection or were after it that they were a byproduct of that ransomware infection? So we can't trace the specific ransomware attack um, to these Wi-Fi, um, uh, compromised Wi-Fi uh, hotspots. Um, we can't um, eliminate them as the cul uh, culprit of those attacks, but we can't uh, definitively say that they were the cause of the malware attack of the ransomware attack. What do we know, if anything, about who is behind these attacks and whether there is any link between the malicious behavior, for example, that we're seeing in Atlanta and what you might be seeing in other large metropolitan areas with these wireless phishing attacks? So, so we look at uh, these kinds of attacks um, as three different levels. There is uh, what we consider state-sponsored, uh, which are very, very targeted. And we've seen a lot of them in Asia, some in Europe, some in the US. They're, they're government-driven, uh, state-driven. Uh, there are lots of um, crime companies, I don't know how to better describe them, that are uh, creating these environments. They behave like companies. They don't behave like, uh, you know, a, what you would call a cyber criminal. Uh, they literally are very well organized and they're very well structured. Um, and we can see patterns of behavior that are very similar to um, a well-organized company. Um, and then there are the individuals, uh, people that uh, put on a trap uh, and uh, accumulate as much data as they can, analyze the data, and then try to resell the data um, either to larger company, larger crime syndicates or on the dark web um, or to blackmail specific people. You know, more generally in the federal government space and also out there and even in large corporations, is there much awareness or attention to this issue of what are our employees encountering when they try and connect to a wireless network, not only in our office building, but at the cafe down the street and, and those types of issues? So I think, I think you nailed a very important point here, because I think when you look at a federal government or federal, federal agencies, their employees are being uh, hammered daily with, uh, you know, security uh, protocols, what they're allowed and not allowed to do. Uh, they don't allow BYOD. They don't allow cloud too much. And uh, everything is very, very much still in the old world of complete control, where the security people can control the device, the network, and whatever services that employee is using. When you go into the private sector, then large companies uh, will probably allow BYOD and uh, cloud uh, and, and connectivity from Wi-Fi and cloud services and so forth, but they invest millions and millions of dollars in protecting those services. When you then go down one notch to the mid-market or the small business market, you see that uh, these folks have no choice but to allow BYOD and cloud services and connectivity from any network anywhere, only they have absolutely no security. And they became the soft underbelly from uh, a security perspective. Because if you look at the uh, US economy, for example, it's hugely dependent on uh, the mid-market and small business. And a small business, once a small business gets hit with a cyber attack, uh, I think um, Kaspersky just released a report that says that uh, the cost of recovery is $160,000 for a small business. Mm, mm -hmm, now, mm -hmm. for a uh, Equifax, $160,000 is not probably not the bagel budget. For a small business, $160,000 hit is the end of the business. It's bankruptcy. So we see this as actually the largest strategic threat from an economical perspective. Uh, certain Places around the U.S., certain states around the U.S. are taking this very seriously. So I'm sure you know that New York, for example, is creating a fund uh, to support small businesses, both from a cybersecurity perspective 
um, uh, education and software and tools. Um, so uh, they're taking it very seriously. But in most other places, small to mid-sized businesses are completely on their own. And this is where we uh, truly come in because we offer them uh, extremely high-level uh, security, um, very high quality, and it's free. So there, there is uh, practically no excuse not to be protected. Have you had the chance to reach out to the folks in Atlanta in the government there and let them know what you found? And if so, have you heard anything back? Uh, we tried. Uh, we heard nothing back. Okay. So is, do we have any idea whether this uh, rogue um, Wi-Fi hotspot is still active within the state capital or, or what? As of this morning, it wasn't. Okay. So at some point it went down. Yeah. Probably shortly after you uh, issued your press release. Most probably. <laughs> Whenever we discover something and we write about it, it disappears, but it reappears shortly after. Right, right. You see, Paul, it's so easy. This technology is so easy. It's like uh, the entire protocol is based on convenience and openness. Uh, and I'm talking about wireless protocols. Um, so attackers are taking advantage of it. And uh, they're taking advantage of one more thing. And you mentioned it uh, indirectly before. And that's the fact that we rely on connectivity today like we rely on oxygen and water. Yeah, people are desperate for it, right? Uh, Absolutely. They always will look for connectivity. And if their cell service doesn't work, they'll look for free Wi-Fi. And uh, they'll sometimes go and eat at a specific restaurant because they know uh, the Wi-Fi network in that restaurant is uh, free and available and fast. So, you know, people, uh, I'm not going to name names, but you know very well about the coffee chains that people use and sit there for hours with their laptops and not knowing if they're really on the coffee shop network or the attacker who's sitting next to them with a backpack. Our listeners, many of them are in IT uh, and IT security roles. What is your advice to them to start to address this threat within their own organization? So I have two, uh, two things. One is go and download our software and set yourself up for free. And by the way, it's free forever. It's not like a free trial uh, that then we start charging you money for. It's, uh, it's really a, a completely free platform. Uh, so go ahead and, and start using it and get protected immediately. Uh, get your employees protected, get your friends and partners. Uh, and the second... Uh, and this is the uh, secure cloud uh, that yeah, you're talking about. It's a secure cloud platform. It's available on our website. Uh, it's made up of two layers. One is a device layer, uh, which is available to anyone and it's completely free. And the second one is a cloud layer that is also free. Um, and if you have a small company that has that uses things like Office 365 or Dropbox or Box or Salesforce, uh, you should seriously look into using our platform. Uh, we can protect you end-to-end -end from uh, the device through the network all the way to the cloud service. It doesn't cost you anything. It's going to take you a few minutes to set up. Um, and at least you're going to get enormous amount of visibility into what's going on, which you get nothing right now. Um, and uh, if you want to take it up a notch, you can start getting protection as well. Uh, and again, it's uh, there's no catch. It's completely free. Um, the second thing that I would uh, recommend doing is uh, start a dialogue with people that work with you uh, around good hygiene. Because I always say this is my my uh, every time I speak publicly, I always say this uh, in the balance between security and convenience. Convenience always wins. Um, so you need to make sure two things. One, that people understand what they're putting at stake. And two, that security is not inconvenient. Because the moment you make security an inconvenience to your end users, they'll find a way around it. Dror Lever of the firm Coronet, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. It was my pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>